Before I dive into the sermon and, and the scripture, the text that I'm going to read today, I want to just begin uh, with a word of prayer. I certainly do pray before my messages. Whenever I preach them, uh, I just don't always do it out loud, and I don't always, we don't always do it corporately together. But uh, today we're going to dive into a story that I think for many of us is going to be familiar. Spoiler alert, we're not going to get all the way through it. We're only going to get about halfway through it. Uh, it's a familiar story, but there are some things in this story as I've studied and as I've prepared that I just felt like were particularly challenging. Um, and so I would like to just begin and make sure that we, uh, we have a time of prayer before, um, before I begin to speak about the word of God. That's a very, very important thing. So I'm going to pray that, that God would guide my words, uh, that I would say what he wants me to say. Uh, you guys can pray that you would hear what he wants you to hear. Uh, and we're going to pray that God would be honored and that the spirit would be with us as we study his word together today. So can we do that? Father, we, we thank you for this day. And Lord, we believe that your, your word is trustworthy. Yeah. It's trustworthy. And every time we open scripture, Lord, we are in awe of the privilege that we have of, of, of entering into your word. And so as we look at a particularly uh, prickly passage today, would you help us to hold up a mirror to our lives, to our hearts? Holy Spirit, would you speak to us? Would the words that we say, and especially the words that I say, fade into the word that you are saying to us? Help us to hear what you want us to hear, what you need us to hear. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So here we are in the book of Daniel, kind of following the story of this Old Testament hero, Daniel. We left off at the end of chapter 2 yesterday. We will pick up, I'm sorry, yesterday. To, uh, last week. When did we have church last? It's Sunday, Sunday. Almost certainly it was Sunday. Last week we ended up at the end of chapter 2. Today I'm picking up at the beginning of chapter 3. We will not always do it quite that sequentially because there are parts of the book of Daniel that are written chronologically out of order. And so I've chosen to take us through his story chronologically. So there will be a few points where we skip ahead a couple of chapters and then circle back because we're going to go through it as best we can chronologically and, and study his life. But today we are going right from chapter two to chapter three. At the end of chapter two, um, we, we had read in, in chapter two, this story of how Daniel and his three friends had, had graduated from their training and they had entered the service of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And they were immediately met, like first day of work. We talked about who's ever had a real bad day on the first day of work, right? They were immediately met with what really could have and should have been a life-threatening challenge. But they remained righteous and God remained faithful. That was kind of the story of chapter 2, right? They remained righteous and God remained faithful. And so in the end, what could have been a terrible, terrible disaster became an opportunity for blessing. And they were all promoted to positions of influence and security. What began as a very, very bad day at work 
ends up with a time of, of blessing and of favor in the workplace. Now, as best we can tell, as you flip the chapter, as you flip the page from chapter two into chapter three, as best we can tell, about 15 years have elapsed, have transpired. Remember, this is Daniel's life story, so we're not gonna follow him every day and every week and not even every year. About 15 years have transpired since since chapter two. And I want you to just think about that. For 15 years, Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego went to work every day. They got up early in the morning and, and they went in and, 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 and went to work serving the king of what for them was the evil empire. For 15 years, they went and, and endured in this, in this place of spiritual ruin as, as they endeavored to maintain their own righteousness. For 15 years, they, they had to wait for reports that they would get from time to time about their homeland, about Jerusalem and what was going on there. And I can tell tell you that none of the reports were good. Things were getting worse and worse. This goes on for 15 years. For 15 years, every day they face the moral and the ethical challenges as they continue to work in the kingdom and for the kingdom. For 15 years, they know what it is to endure the, the day by day by day marathon of maintaining a commitment to righteousness and to honoring God and the sovereignty he has in their lives. 15 years. And now, as we join them in chapter three, these boys aren't boys anymore, are they? Do the math, they're in their early 30s now. They're, they're young men. And then, after 15 years, something happens. And it's something alarming. I'm going to read to you from Daniel chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue, 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then he sent messages to all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the statue he had set up. So all of these officials came and stood before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald shouted out, People of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the instruments, bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So at the sound of all the musical instruments, all the people, whatever their race or nation or language, bowed to the ground and worshiped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So let me give you just a recap. I'm gonna translate that into the revised Dan version of scripture. You're gonna hear me tell the story of what we just read. Nebuchadnezzar has built this, this gold covered statue and statue of what you ask? The answer is we don't know. We don't know what the statue was of. And he builds it in a field, in the middle of a field, in a suburb just outside the city of Babylon. Now, what was this statue? If you've ever, you know, seen a, a children's storybook or the VeggieTale movie or something like that, you know, the authors envision what the statue maybe was, but you'll notice in scripture, it doesn't actually tell us 
what the statue was. But based on the measurements given, did, did you catch that? In the original language, it talks about cubits, but in the translation I used, it translates it into feet. It says about 90 feet tall and about nine feet wide. Based on those measurements, it would be hard to envision it being a person because the proportions are all wrong. Based on those measurements, picture something more like a, a pillar or a pole or an obelisk, something like the Washington Monument. Picture the Washington Monument. Not nearly that tall, they didn't have the technology to do that, but by their measurements, eight or nine stories high, which in those days would have been more than sufficient for everybody in the surrounding area to see this, this statue, this image, this idol, whatever you want to call it, from a great, great distance. Nebuchadnezzar builds it. It must have taken some time to build. People would have known that it was being constructed. It didn't just appear overnight one day. But when it's finally finished, he gives an invitation, not really an invitation. He gathers all of the government officials to a dedication ceremony. And he tells them that from now on, when they hear a certain song play, everybody has to stop what they're doing, bow in a posture of worship and face the statue. And it isn't just a suggestion, right? It's a law, you have to do this and you have to fulfill this law on pain of death. If you don't do this, you will be executed. Now the government officials, the text is very clear. These folks are from a variety of different backgrounds. They're all working for Babylon now, just like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, but they're from other places. They have different races, they have different languages, they have different nationalities, but they're now all here working for the empire. And they all immediately comply with the king's new rule. And this becomes the standard in Babylon. We have this sense from the text that this isn't about one particular meeting that took place on one particular day, but that this was an ongoing rule. New rule, the king said, whenever you hear the music, you, you, have, to, you have to bow down. And it becomes the standard in Babylon. When the music plays, everybody stops what they're doing to bow in reverence to this statue. What's interesting to me about this story at this point is that there's no suggestion that the statue is supposed to be a god. It's not a religious situation at all. This doesn't seem to be an idol in the sense of a false religion or something like that. And here's why we know that. The chief god in ancient Babylon was a god by the name of Marduk. Marduk had a large temple right in the middle of the city, right exactly where you'd expect it to be. Nebuchadnezzar had actually built that temple for Marduk. Marduk wasn't the only god worshipped in ancient Babylon. There were several other local gods. As we mentioned, there were people living in Babylon from all sorts of places, and they brought their own heritages and their own religions and their own gods and their own idols, and they built, in some cases, their own temples right there in downtown Babylon. And so we know that ancient Babylon had the giant temple to Marduk, Marduk, but it also had smaller temples to other lesser gods throughout the city. And typically in each one of those temples, you would find an image, an idol, a statue that was not a representation of the God in their belief. That was the God. The, the image, the idol was the God. And so it was very important to keep the statue, the image, the idol in the temple 
because the temple was the house of the God. And the God didn't like to go outside of his house because in his house, he was warm. In his house, he was safe. In his house, he was dry when the rains came. The people would feed the God. That's what sacrifices were in the ancient world. They would literally bring food for the idol to eat. They took care of the God in that way. If you were going to build a new God, a new idol, the last thing you would do is go put it out in a field outside the city gates in a plane in the suburbs somewhere where it would get rained on, where no one would take care of it, where the wind would make it cold and where the coyotes would do their business up against its base. That is not how you would treat a God in ancient Babylon. There is no sense in which Nebuchadnezzar is creating a new God and saying from now on, everybody has to worship this God. No, it wasn't that at all. Nebuchadnezzar's statue was almost certainly some sort of monument. A monument meant to commemorate the strength of his empire. And so I tossed out the idea of the Washington Monument a little bit ago. In that sense, it might have been very, very much like that. This is a symbol of national pride and national unity. It was tall so that everyone in the province could see it no matter where they were. It had its own theme song, kind of like a, a national anthem, perhaps. When you hear the music, everybody knows to stand and salute or face or bow or do whatever it is that you do in that culture. One more item. It wasn't the priests that Nebuchadnezzar called and said, from now on, you have to worship this idol. It, it didn't say priests, did it? It was government officials. It was the government officials that Nebuchadnezzar called at the beginning and said, you need to be at this dedication ceremony and you guys are going to take the lead in showing everyone how to pay reverence to this monument. Nebuchadnezzar's statue was a monument to his kingdom. And the king wanted to make sure that the people kept their highest allegiance, not to their God, but to the kingdom. And that's what worldly kingdoms do, don't they? Worldly kingdoms will always contend for our allegiance. Now, maybe you've read this story before. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe you've pictured it in your head and you assumed, as many do, that Nebuchadnezzar was trying to impose a new religion on everyone. Because that's, we read the Bible and we, you know, idolatry and we think religion, religion, religion. And maybe you thought, well, good. I'm, spoiler alert here, right? I know how this story goes. The three boys aren't going to bow down before it. And we're going to end up with a situation in a furnace, right? I hope I didn't spoil it for you. But a lot of you know the story, right? And maybe you thought it and you pictured it and you said, good for those boys. Good for them for, for literally taking a stand for their God and not falling for this false religion. But that's not really what's happening here. I believe actually that something far more sinister than that is going on. Something that sounds a whole lot more like the modern world than you might think. Nebuchadnezzar, at least in his own mind, wasn't trying to replace anybody's religion. The text is clear that the crowd that he gathered had representatives, as we said, from a variety of different races, a variety of different languages, a variety of different 
nations of origin, and every one of them would have had their own gods, their own religions, their own idols, their own way of worshiping. And that was allowed in ancient Babylon. That was allowed. We've already heard Nebuchadnezzar talk to Daniel about his God in pretty glowing terms, right? Hey, your God is pretty cool. We've heard Nebuchadnezzar already say that. He's not trying to replace the gods of the people who live in his kingdom. He's not trying to abolish them. He's not trying to, he's not trying to impede the free exercise of religion. The king is saying, hey, here in Babylon, we are enlightened. And you are allowed to devote yourself to any god and any religion you want just as long as you devote yourself to the empire first. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is saying. Just as long as you devote yourself to the empire first. That's how worldly empires work, isn't it? The empire is going to consider itself to be religiously tolerant. The empire is going to allow you to pursue your religion more or less the way you want to. The empire is going to celebrate its own enlightened sense of religious plurality. And from time to time, it's even going to try to make you happy by saying a few nice things about the way you practice your faith. Just like we've already heard Nebuchadnezzar say to Daniel. Your God is the best God of all the gods. (laughs) The empire is going to do all of those things, things that sound like freedom, things that, that look like what you think you want for the practice of your faith, but it's going to tell you that you only get those things if you pledge allegiance to the empire first. It's going to demand your highest devotion. Good, bad, or indifferent, that's what worldly kingdoms do. They want our allegiance. And for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's a problem. That's a problem. Now, no mention is made in this chapter about Daniel. We don't know exactly why. Perhaps his higher position exempted him from the order. Or maybe he was out of the province on some other assignment at the time. We really don't know. He's absent from this story, but he tells us this story about what happened to his three friends. And so I want to pick it up right from Scripture. I'm in verse 8 now of chapter 3. It says, but some of the astrologers went to the king and informed on the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, long live the king. You issued a decree requiring all the people to bow down and worship the gold statue when they heard the sound of the musical instruments. And that decree also states that those who refuse to obey must be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you have put in charge of the province of Babylon, and they pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue you have set up. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed that passage of scripture as much as I do. (laughs) Oh, your majesty, your honor, we think you're great and you're awesome and everything is wonderful, but you really made this problem for yourself when you put those guys in charge. (laughs) That's what these guys are saying. And they tattle on them. They tattle on them. They said, you know, we've been watching those three guys and they aren't dancing when you say dance. 
They aren't doing what you said to do. They refuse to honor the empire. And you, O wise one, put them in charge. Something's got to be done. They don't fit in, their accusers are saying. They aren't like the rest of us, their accusers are saying. They are not completely loyal to you, O king. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I imagine, if they had heard these accusations directly at that moment, would have said, guilty as charged. Guilty as charged. Because as with several of the other stories that we've already studied in Daniel, we're seeing something happen here, aren't we? And it's this. Righteousness refuses to worship worldly power. Righteousness refuses to worship, to worship worldly power. If you've been with us over the past couple of weeks, do we remember back in Daniel chapter 1 when we read the story about Daniel being taken to Babylon? And he said, look, I'll learn in your schools. I will speak your language. I will study your history. I will serve in your king's court. I will do all of those things, but I will not eat from his table. And we said, what an odd place to put a boundary, right? What an odd place to put a boundary. But we dug into that text a little bit deeper and we discovered, I hope you remember, that what Daniel was saying is, I will not allow the world to believe and I will not allow myself to be duped into believing that I am sustained by the king's good pleasure, right? That's not where I find the source of my strength. And that's what eating from the king's table meant. Right? That's what eating from the king's table meant to those people. And Daniel said, I won't do it. I won't do it this far, but no farther. I, I, I won't do it. And the reason is, I am not going to orient my life in such a way that it can be said that I acknowledge your power as being greater than the power of the God who has given me life. That's why Daniel wouldn't eat the food. And that's why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego won't bow down in front of the monument. Is that we will not perform an act of worship for some monument or emblem of national unity because an act of worship is something that is reserved only for our God. So we will serve your empire. We will support your policies. We will come to work every day for 15 years and do our job so well that you promote us up to the ladder, but we will not tell the world that it's your power that we worship. Righteousness refuses to worship worldly power. 2023. Do we understand that this is what the world is doing? The world is telling us you can have your religion, you can have your faith, you can follow your Jesus as long as your first loyalty goes to the empire. Oh no, worldly kings say, well, I'm not trying to deny you your faith. You can serve whatever God you want to serve as long as you serve me first. As long as you serve me first. And church, in far too many cases, we're falling for it. We're falling for it. The church in America today, I'm worried. I'm concerned. I'm grieved because I think in many cases we're worshiping political influence. And we've told ourselves it's okay because it's not a religion. 
Or we're worshiping money and financial growth and we've told ourselves, okay, because it's not a religion. Or we're worshiping professional success and we've told ourselves, oh, it's okay because it's not a religion. But they are religions. They are religions if we make them so. The things we worship become religious idols in our lives. And so do the authorities that we bow down before. And so do the influences that shape us. You know, saying it's okay for me to put this issue first in my life because it's not a religion. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And we excuse it by saying, well, it's not a god. It's my career. It's the health of my family. It's my financial security. It's this, it's that, it's the other thing. Saying that's what makes it okay because it's not a religion. Doing that is a little bit like me thinking that I could lose weight by planning carefully proportioned meals and adhering strictly to the religion of nutrition. But in between meals, I eat nothing but Doritos and donuts. <laughs> oh, it's okay. I, I, didn't, I had a healthy lunch. And I had a healthy dinner. And I had a healthy breakfast. Don't ask me what happened in between. How many dieters in the room know exactly what I'm talking about, right? It's a religion if we make it so. It's bad nutrition if we make it so. It's bad for us if we allow it. Christians in America today, we need to be very, very careful about the role that patriotism, allegiance, and national pride take in our lives. I fear that these things have become idolatrous religions to many who claim to follow Jesus alone. I want to tell you a little bit about me so that you understand where I'm coming from. I love my country and I consider myself to be a patriot. The flag, the US flag flies outside my home on holidays. If you look through my personal bookshelves, you're going to find them lined with all of my favorite books on American history. That's my favorite subject to read about when I'm not reading theology. If you go into my Hulu account and look at what Dan's recently watched movies are, documentaries, history, America, I'm kind of a nerd. I am immensely proud of my family members and my church family members who have worn the uniform of our nation in defense of this great nation. I'm proud of that. You're going to find me and the worship team front and center on the July 4th parade in downtown Downers Grove. We kind of own that parade, don't we? Yeah, yeah, we do. Right? I just want you to understand that that's who I am. That's in my heart. This is not a down with America sermon today. That is absolutely who I am. But there's some boundaries there. There are some boundaries there. I will not pledge my allegiance to anything other than my Savior, Jesus Christ. And I will not fall for it when earthly kings try to curry my favor or try to court my vote by saying nice things about my faith. I won't fall for it. I reject the notion that the Bible suggests some sort of favored status for my country. I reject that as a heresy and a dangerous one. And I will not celebrate my nation in the same space where I worship my Lord. I will do my best to honor my nation, to pray for it, to serve it well, to sacrifice for it if need be, to participate 
in it to submit to those in authority to the degree that my faith allows me to, but I will not allow myself to be found bowing down before its graven images. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wouldn't do it, and neither should we. And here's what happened to them. Picking up the story in Daniel chapter 3, verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage. Oh, this is going bad very, very quickly. He flew into a rage and he ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. And when they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods? Which, by the way, wasn't even part of the story at the beginning. But now, now, now we're going to throw the book at them, right? Is it true that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship that statue I set up? Will you, I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? Huh? The huh isn't in there. I just felt like I felt a huh coming on there. And so I put it in. Is that okay? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. Have you heard me say this before? You don't have to show up to every argument you were invited to. We don't need to, we don't need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. They're answering this question. Who, who will be able to save you then? Well, as a matter of fact, the God who we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if... He doesn't. But even if he doesn't. I'm going to say it one more time. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. But even if he doesn't, I think those are the most famous five words in the whole story. But even if he doesn't. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had a but even if. They had a but even if in their story. See, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't like that. He was all about the practical outcome. And that's the way the world works, right? The end justifies the means. It's all about the practical outcome. What's actually going to happen here? Theory is fine, but what's actually going to happen is what matters. That's the way things work in the world. And Nebuchadnezzar and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have a failure to communicate here because they aren't operating on the same wavelength. He's saying, I'm going to throw you in this furnace, and we don't need to call NASA to figure out what's going to happen to you in there. And they say, well, as a matter of fact, we do believe that we could be saved, but that's not why we're doing this. That's not why we're doing this. Nebuchadnezzar is looking at them with his jaw on the ground and he's saying, boys, your faith is admirable, but it's impractical. Your faith, follower of Jesus, is admirable, but it's impractical. Don't you hate being patronized like that? Don't you hate being patronized like that? Have you ever heard the world tell you that? Jesus, oh, what a brilliant teacher. 
What a peaceful man. You know, if if I didn't have so much going on on Sunday mornings, I'd be at church with you. (laughs) Oh, you know, if we had more time, man, I'd love to, you know, volunteer and feed my starving children. Or in that mission trip you took to Haiti, oh, bless your heart. Bless your heart. I'm sick of being patronized like that. And I'm a little angry about it today. So I'm working through some things. I'm working through some things. I don't want us to be angry at the world, but I don't want us to grow numb to that either. When is the world finally going to understand that righteousness is right? Regardless of the outcome. Righteousness, it's it's in the word. (laughs) Righteousness is right. Regardless of the outcome. And that's really what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are saying. They're saying, Nebuchadnezzar, with all due respect, you're actually wrong. (laughs) Oh, mighty king. (laughs) You're actually wrong. Our God can save us. You think no one can save us. But our God can save us. But that's not why we're serving him today. Oh, that's not why we're serving him today. We're serving him because he is Lord and you're not. Mic drop. Loving it, loving it, loving it. I should have had the microphone. Joel, would you give me the mic? I'll drive. Okay, no, no, no. We'll do that another time. Okay. We're serving him because he is Lord. We're serving God because he is Lord. We're following Jesus because he is Lord and you're not. With all due respect. Being righteous in ruin means recognizing that your righteousness won't always save you from the ruin. I I know I've already done this, but I think I need to say that again. Being righteous in ruin means recognizing that your righteousness won't always save you from the ruin. If righteousness saved you from ruin, Daniel and his boys would have been back in Jerusalem living the good life. They were righteous. This is part of what we need to understand from Scripture. Doing the right thing isn't always going to save you from the ruin. Miracles happen. Amen? Miracles happen. We believe in an almighty God. Miracles happen, but not every time. That's why we call them miracles. Otherwise, we would just call them results. And that's why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have to live in the tension of but even if. And I think one of the greatest challenges for us in 2023 is that we are still living in the tension of but even if, aren't we? We are living in that uncomfortable, awkward place of but even if. And so we are a people, and this is our testimony, this is our story today, right? We're saying God can heal my cancer, but even if. It's not a lack of faith. It's not a lack of faith. It's part of our spiritual heritage. It's the reality of being righteous in ruin. God can heal my cancer, but even if, I will serve him. God can restore my marriage, but even if, I will love him. (laughs) 
God can provide for my bills. I'm going to start tithing because I heard the preacher say, when you tithe, the money comes in and you got nowhere to put it all. God can pay for my bills. But even if, I will trust him. Single person. God can find me a spouse. But even if, I will obey him. And we go on and on and on. God can, but even if. God can, but even if. That's what righteousness looks like. That's what faithfulness looks like. A heart with that kind of strength is never going to bow down before the king's statue. It's not going to happen. A heart like that knows only one allegiance and only one Lord. A heart like that is righteous no matter what kind of ruin comes its way. And that's what we hear from these boys today. We're going to have to put a bookmark in it. We're going to come back next week and we're going to dive into the but even if. But I think it's good for us today to not get to that part. Let's live in the tension of that story. Let's live our lives in the tension of between faith and outcome. Let's trust. We pray. Church, as I pray for you, I want to invite you to, in the quietness of your heart, to submit whatever the but even if in your life is before the Lord. And I want to acknowledge that that is a difficult thing to do. It's a frightening thing to do. It's a scary thing to do. Historians tell us that execution by fiery furnace was was not a common thing. That's not the typical way of things in the Middle East. But they surmise that perhaps this monument being freshly built, there would have been a furnace right there where they had killed the gold plating that covered it all. And so there's this whole other wrinkle to what the kingdom of the earth wants to do. They want to exploit your lack of faith. They want to, they want to contend for your allegiance. And then they're going to use whatever convenient means there is to destroy you. I hope that doesn't sound unnecessarily alarming today. But I just think the threat of what's easy for the kingdom to do you know, Nebuchadnezzar's like, boys, the furnace is right there. Like, it's a little toasty here already, you know? It's right over there. Don't you get it? Don't you understand it? The, the threat of what seems so obvious and so easy for the world to do, we can't afford to live in that kind of fear. And so I encourage you, in all the strength that Christ gives you, to look directly at that furnace, that but even if, 
and say, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. And if your voice falters when you say it, if, 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 you, if you feel weak even as you say it, guess what? You're on to something. You're on to something. Because it's not going to be in your strength, right? His strength is made perfect where? In your weakness. In your weakness. God, throughout this room, you're right now hearing the prayers of silent hearts that are offering up to you the challenges that they face, the threats that they face, the impositions of a kingdom that will not serve you. God, you are hearing the but even ifs of your people today. And I pray that where we are weak, and it's everywhere, Lord, where we are weak and where we are frightened, where we have in our natural, in our flesh, where we have fear, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would flood into a faithful people. You would strengthen and uphold a faithful people that the whisper, the quietness, and the fear of a but even if would become the proud declaration of these three young Hebrew boys who said well actually my God can our God can our God can and that's where our faith is today Lord Jesus our worship is for you and for you alone and so we have the unique privilege of reading this passage through the lens of citizenship in the United States of America in the year 2023. And many of us consider that to be a tremendous privilege. We are immensely grateful, immensely grateful for the blessings you have given us. But we will not bow down before the graven images of our nation. We will not presume that your blessings are for political kingdom but rather God they are for a kingdom not of this world for a kingdom not of this world and help us never to confuse the two that Jesus would be the center of our lives we pray that our faith would be as strong as, as that of the boys that we read about today, the young man who had endured 15 years of nonsense. And then one day it got real. One day it got real. Lord, that day might be tomorrow or the next for any one of us. I pray that when it comes, you would find us faithful. You would find us faithful. Lord, that you would have seen us through this process of establishing the foundation of our faith. And our worship and our affection, our allegiance and our loyalty only for you. Would you do it for your kingdom's sake? We pray in Jesus' name and everybody says, Amen. Amen.